0: into the Theology Pit. Alright everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is theology out of Pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit. And you're probably sick of me saying this by now, since we are actually on The 12th part of our Salvation series, where I'm always saying, you know, if you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. And of course, you die of dehydration before you die of starvation. So I'm just, I'm actually erasing something here and making a little note. I have to change a 19 to a 20 in my notes because I didn't get to the governmental view in the last one. I promised that I wouldn't, and I promised that I would, and I didn't. And I'm sorry about that. So this time, With this Theology Pit today, I am starting with the governmental view of the atonement. We are going to take a look at this, and we're going to get an understanding of the what and the why. Um, I had to get in about Jacob Arminius, and I had to get into Arminianism, because it lends credibility to the governmental view of the atonement. Um, Also, I had to talk about the Anabaptists, because the Anabaptist movement, again lends credibility to the governmental view of the atonement. And, of course, I had to talk about what was going on with the Protestants and with the Reformation because, once again, it lends credibility to the governmental view of the atonement. I also had to talk about the um, moral example theory again, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more because the contrast between the moral example theory of the atonement And the governmental view of the atonement is, in my opinion, I think it's striking. I think that it's uh, something to be recognized. I think it's a, um, a good contrast, I suppose, in the way somebody can look at what Christ's death means and what it means on our responsibility. And I think you can go really far one direction and really far the other direction. And the moral example theory, I think, went way too far in the one direction, whereas the governmental view, well, we're going to see how far in the other direction it goes, or does it go in the other Maybe you totally disagree with me. Maybe you're like, you know what, that, that doesn't make any sense. The governmental view is nothing like that. Now, I am going to warn you, I am going to be equating the governmental view with Arminianism a lot. And it's not because all Arminians hold to the governmental view. It's just that the majority of people who claim to be Arminian actually do hold to the governmental view of the atonement. All right, so let's begin with this. Let's start out with what the moral example view was. Um, The moral example view of the atonement, if you remember, it was a... Understanding that was articulated in the 11th century, we could say 12th century. It was held by uh, Abelard and also by um, more liberal uh, Christians. It is, um, it is like the the example view of the way that we should behave is like Christ. We should be looking at Christ. And saying, look at how he was. That's how we should be. We should be completely obedient to God the Father. Just as God the Son was completely obedient. And he only did what the Holy Spirit led him to do. Jesus did not do anything on his own. He did not do anything of his own will. He did it all on the will of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And technically, Jesus never did any miracles. Just like in the Old Testament, the um, prophets never did any miracles, never of their own power. It was always by the power of God, the will of God, the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit that empowered them to to do anything. Nobody would look back at the Old Testament and say, you know, when whenever a, an Old Testament prophet would, you know, raise someone from the dead, they would say, "Look, he raised them from the dead." No, God raised them from the dead. So, when we look at Christ and what Christ did, we would say Christ fully submitted to the will of the Father. And to the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of life and the kind of obedience that we want to have. Now, it was his mission to go to the cross. That might not be our mission. Our mission might not be martyrdom. Okay, But if it is, we should accept that. And we should want to do the will of the Father to the point of sacrifice. Now, Christ went to the cross and was sacrificed. He died, and three days later, he was raised from the dead. Perfect obedience to the Father, while it may look like things are bad, they will turn out for good. And Scripture backs that up. You know, Scripture says that you know, yeah, uh, you know, he is completing the good work that he started in us. So, even though it may seem like things are bad, it, at their worst, you know that God is in control and has just the best for us. And we look at the way that Christ lived his life and how he prayed every day. And he learned the scriptures at a young age and he taught others and he was kind, and he was compassionate. That's the way that we should be. And we should strive to be that good. That is the point of the cross, of the life of Christ. That is what the whole purpose behind it. God... Does not need to be satisfied. God is not with, he has no needs. God is perfect. He is whole. God also doesn't need a sacrifice in order to forgive. God can do anything, he could freely forgive. The greatest virtue that we see is someone who can forgive without any basis. Except love. Because God loved me, I can then love others. And I will love others. We need to recognize God's love for us. And through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we actually can. And we can turn to it and we can look to it. And... The fact that Jesus was able to give us this example, that is what the, the cross is all about. So we should really think about the life and death of Christ as motivating factors in our life. This is what will keep us going day after day. And I know it's hard, but we pick up our cross and we follow Christ. All right. That is the passionate, emotional argument for the moral example theory of why Christ died. Now, again, very few people hold to this. Very few people ever held to this. It's not like this was something that, you know, a big part of the church grabbed onto. But like with the, you know, explanation of the Ransom to Satan view— It makes sense on some level. You look at that, and I mean, you may have been nodding your head with me. You may even have been amening and agreeing. And a lot of that stuff I would agree with. Now, the conclusions I don't agree with, but the main points I do agree with. Yeah, Christ is a perfect example. Yes, we should want to live for God. We should want to, you know... uh, trust in Him and obey Him and believe in Him. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with all that stuff. I disagree with the conclusion that um, that was the point of the cross. I disagree with the understanding of, you know, God not needing to be satisfied because I think that that goes against His perfect justice. So, that's the moral example theory. Okay. On the flip side, the governmental theory is this, that Christ's death was a nominal substitute, okay? It was for the penalty of the sins of man. And God graciously chose to accept that, but he did it, only to uphold his moral government. Now, if you sin, the governmental theory shows you the seriousness that God takes for sin. What was done to Christ is what should have been done to you. And because of Christ... The penalty for sin was punished. Okay, the propitiation was made. Sin was punished. If you want to keep on sinning, that's what's going to happen to you. If you want to keep disobeying God, that is what's going to happen to you. That's how serious sin is. That when someone who is sinless and perfect and sin is put on them to be punished, that is what's happened. That's what happens. And that's what's going to happen to you. If you think that you can just live however you want, and you can just walk around however you want, just you continue in your sin, you don't take sin seriously. You think that you can disobey the law of God. You think that you could disobey the word of God and just, just think and do however you want and not ask for forgiveness. That is what's going to happen to you you are going to be sent to hell you are sending yourself to hell you are condemning yourself God showed us through Christ what he is going to do to sin because it has to be done because he is just and this is what a just and righteous God does and he doesn't mess around you need to live right, you need to walk upright, and you need to do right. And if you don't, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God because sin will be punished, whether you're being punished for it or Christ is punished for you. Either way, it's going to happen. That is the governmental view of the atonement. Do you hear the contrast in those two? Different views. Do you hear how one is God is so loving that he's just like, I know it's hard. I know it's hard that, you know, sinful nature and, you know, being a sinner and you were made this way and you really. It's not like you want to do it. I know it's, you know what? It's cool. Don't worry about it. Do your best. And the other side of it is you need to straighten up. You are given the responsibility, which means you are able to respond. You have the mental capacity you are made in the image of God. Straighten up. You know right from wrong. You know what you're doing is wrong. What is, what's the matter with you? You'll be punished for this. You think that you can just do whatever you want? That's the difference. That's the kind of the nut, nuts and bolts of the two different views. Now, let's unpack the governmental view a little bit more and see why... Why would something like that be held rationally? You know, I mean, knowing what we know about our history here in the theology pit, if you've been, you know, listening to the other 19 podcasts in this series and you get up to the point where you're like, why would this be palatable to someone? Again, what you have to do, forget all of the Lutheran and reformed, understanding. Take the understanding of the Anabaptists, okay, the Puritans, that you you have to do something. Take the view that you are not justified by God forensically declaring you righteous, by God saying that you are righteous. Take away the aspect that it is the faithfulness of Christ, but you are justified by your faith and what that means. Now, in Arminianism, there are different degrees of this. And Arminian churches are churches like um, Baptist churches, uh, Southern Baptist churches, the uh, Assemblies of God, any of the Pentecostal movements, Um, Bible-believing churches, any church that says Bible-believing in front of it, any church that says, um, you know, Disciple of Christ, anyone that doesn't, if they claim that they are non-denominational, generally they fall into either the Pentecostal or the Restorationist view, and that comes out of an Anabaptist-Arminian tradition, And I know a lot of Anabaptists, well, I I should say, I don't know, I know a lot of Arminians that would hate me lumping them together. But the fact of the matter is that this governmental view is not held to by any Calvinist Protestant church. It's not. It is very much an antithesis to the majority of their doctrines In their or their confessions, their their statements of faith, as we saw in the last theology pit, with what Jacob Arminius wrote and the and the parts of that that I highlighted, there was the reason a reason for it, because you can take that to one extreme or the other. Excuse me. You can look at that and you can if all right. Let's say that you are. From this Anabaptist tradition, very uneducated, okay uneducated theologically. you may be smart in other areas, but this is like what people would say street smarts type you know I'm street smarts. I can read my Bible street smartly all right and you know theology isn't something I have to learn it's just it's it's a it's a made up word that you know only legalists and other people that I'm going to make an ad hominem argument against you know use. Because I don't understand what it is, even though I do it. People that say, you know, theology is just, you know, man, his it's man's Bible. It's not God's Bible. Um, they're the same type of people that would make the argument that, you know, philosophy is useless and fail to recognize that that's a philosophical argument. Whenever you ask somebody who Jesus is, they give you a theological answer. They're theologians. Everybody's a theologian. It's just, are you a good theologian or are you a bad theologian? Anabaptists generally are bad theologians. Um, The Anabaptists at this time. So if you are an Anabaptist who's a bad theologian, but you hear something like what Jacob Arminius was saying and the Arminian confession of 1621, that resonates with you. That's something that you hear and you're like, you know what? I agree with that. That sounds a lot like what I agree with. I'm going to hold on to that. I'm going to adopt it. And the parts that I like, I'm really going to highlight those. And I'm really going to push for that. And if anyone comes against me for it, I'm going to point them to the Armenian confession. And I'm going to say, no, look here. The Armenian confession They would trace back to the teachings of Jacobus Arminius, who learned what he learned by reforming Calvinism and coming out of what Calvin understood, who was a disciplinarian and a reformer of what Ulrich Zwingli held to. And Ulrich Zwingli was a contemporary of Martin Luther, and they learned a lot from Erasmus. And Erasmus and Tinsdale were very big on understanding the Bible and reading the Bible and man having free will. And the Renaissance movement and the... Uh, um the, the the humanist understanding and the reformers and the ad fonts and going back to the sources and getting back to the original Greek language and understanding the Bible and understanding that first century church and what the apostles really taught and what they really meant. See the line that we're in? You see how we are just refining and bringing out what the early church thought. And this is our linear Sequence and that I think that that's how they would look at it. They would say, "Look at, you know, where we are pulling what, what it's come from." Of course, they don't you know, veer into you know the, the you know the Anabaptist of Munster, of, of course, and, and what the potentially can happen there, or you know, with the early church with um, the uh, was it the Mon- Montanists. And, you know, what they did and is speaking in tongues, claiming that they were the promised paraclete and you know, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and that they were speaking for God. Um, they don't understand the implications of the Gnostic philosophy, um, Stoic philosophy. And, I, you know, and I think that there is some Stoicism that does tend to move in here. And I think a lot has to deal with the, the way that they view the constitution of man, anthro- the anthropology, uh, Christian anthropology in that sense. So, you have a person by the name of um, Hugo Grotius, and I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It's spelled G-R-O-T-I-U-S, okay? And he's the one that came up with this moral government view that God has a, basically what it says, a moral government. There, There's a morality, and there's a right and wrong with it, and it's a governmental system, and certain things have to be taken care of. This is why he used uh, legal language in the in the Book of Romans, and why Luther picked up on it. Luther was being trained as a lawyer before he went into uh, the um, monastery, the um, to become an Augustinian monk, and you know he was sensitive to this type of legal language, these this courtroom type stuff, so. This guy was more or less a politician. He was very big into natural government. Um, really, that's more or less his claim to fame. It's not in theology. If you you know look up his background, that's what you're seeing. It's not that he wrote huge volumes on theology. It's not that he understood you know subtle nuances. Slurp my coffee there. Um, It's that he came up with this view and said, huh, this is the way our natural government functions, or the way that it should function. We, being made in the image of God, and God is a God of order, God set up a theocracy with with Israel. They were under a theocracy. Calvin uh, set up a theocracy in Geneva, in which he probably you know was exposed to, and was looking at that and saying, oh, "If this is the way that God works, then why not when it comes to soteriology, and the study of salvation? Here, why wouldn't he have like a moral government system? It just kind of makes sense, right?" So. He one of his points that he made was that Jesus' sacrificial death occurred in order for the Father to forgive while still maintaining his just rule over the universe. So if it wasn't for Christ, then and, and his sacrificial death and his death having to be a sacrifice, then God would not be seen as a just God. Or he would be, it would be say that he didn't take sin seriously. So Christ, his sacrifice was nominal. It wasn't an exact payment because it didn't have to be an exact payment. If it was an exact payment, how is it that, you know, the punishment for sin, any sin, is eternal damnation? It seems kind of extreme, you know? So... Christ would have to be eternally damned, eternally punished. But he's not, you know, punished for, what, four, six hours on the cross? Depending on if you hold to, um, you know, him ascending into hell and what happened there. And there are some teachers today, uh, I I should say quote-unquote teachers, Christian uh, pastors, leaders... Who will make the argument on TV? They have huge people. Love these these people that you know. Jesus had to go to hell to be tortured by Satan and the demons in order for um, the atonement to actually matter. In order for it to take place, and you have to believe that. So, even if you have that thrown in, still it's just a couple of days. It's not eternity. It's not forever. So his sacrifice necessarily was just a token sacrifice. It was a nominal sacrifice. And that, that upheld God's moral government because a payment, a punishment that was acceptable was made. And, it, and with it being Christ, someone who is sinless and someone who is himself God, that makes the, the sacrifice just unmeasurable, enormous. So it was a nominal sacrifice, a token sacrifice, but it's not that it was a sacrifice that, you know, wasn't enough. It was definitely a sacrifice that was way more than enough over the top, just not precise, not exact, and not substitutionary. So from, uh, Millard Erickson's works uh, on Christian theology. Um, he he has a couple points that I was able to, to pull out here, um, and that's uh, God's love and compassion is dominant is his is the dominant attribute in this theory. Okay, so that becomes problematic if you say that God is. Um, un- unchangeable, that he's that he's equal, that God is just as just as he is loving. And that's really the problem that you have with the moral example theory, is that God is more loving than he is just. And the problem that you have here is it seems that he's much more about his justice than he is about being loving. Um, but this view would say that, you know, um, that love and compassion is the dominant attribute in this theory. But I I don't know. You know, it. whenever you make the claim or if you develop something where somebody can look at it and say, oh, it seems that this is an attribute that dominates the other attributes within the person of God, within the nature of God. And, um, you know, one day we'll talk theology proper and we'll talk about the communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes of God and what makes God, God. And how that differs from other religions and how they view God and and why Christians will say, well, no, Muslims and Christians don't worship the same God because there's different attributes of those two gods A Muslim would say the same thing. If you asked a good Muslim, do you and and Christians worship the same God? They'd be like, absolutely not. We most certainly don't. Um, And I've I've talked to other Muslims that totally agree with what I've said. They're like, yeah, we most certainly don't. I mean, an educated Muslim thinks that Christians worship Jesus as God. And they're like, that's not us. We don't believe Jesus is God. Christians would say, well, we do. Okay, that's obviously two contradictory things, meaning two contradictory ideas of God. Um, This view, uh, he goes on to say, it acts as a deterrent from sin, uh, Christ's death, um, which uh, contrasts with the moral example theory uh, to compel with love. You see what God does to Christ because of sin. That's a deterrent. That is a turn or burn mentality. You will go to hell if you don't straighten out your life, if you don't live right, if you don't do these perfect things, if you continue to sin. God's going to send you to hell. Is that where you want to go? That's what this is saying. Christ's death uh, was not a punishment made, but it was punishment that was unnecessary. I think I did I read that right. I I wrote this and I'm I'm looking at my notes here saying did I read that right. Let me read let me read the whole thing here without the you know um without the Shatner pause in it. Uh, Christ's death was not a punishment. But made punishment unnecessary. Okay, there we go. See, I, I read it wrong. I had it you know, set up. So, Christ's death makes it possible for you to be saved. Christ's death makes it possible for God to forgive you without you having to be punished. So that's that's a distinction there. Um. It also makes a vicarious penal substitution impossible. We talked about that. And it teaches us how horrible God thinks sin is. Um, so should we also... See, I keep doing those Shatner pauses, and then while I'm reading my notes, it just comes out wrong. Um, we should think that sin is horrible, and totally abhor from it, run from it, get away from it, do everything we can to get it out of us, continually repent. Um, Martin Luther said that he repents in the same way that he um, sins, in thought, word, and deed. You just need that constant thing. Not saying that Martin Luther held to the governmental view, because this is obviously articulated well after uh, Martin Luther. But, um, you know... God wants us to know how horrible sin is, and he has demonstrated through Christ on the cross, through this view, how awful it is and why you should think it's awful also. So as we turn from our sin, we can then be forgiven because we are in agreement with God that this is is terrible, and we ask for forgiveness. And because of what Christ did, God is then able to grant that forgiveness to us as we ask for it. Um, but the question is, when, when you look at the, the, the totality of the governmental view here, in the point of it, the, the, the purpose of it, okay, it's all about what God did to Christ on the cross, you know, as that example, and for his moral judgment, this does bring up this question, at least in my mind, is that why couldn't this have been demonstrated any other time? Any other time in the life of Christ? Why did it have to be at this time? Why did it have to be when he was in his 30s? Why couldn't this just been done when he was a baby? Why Couldn't, you know, Herod have found him when he sent him out and, you know, he's probably would have been found when he was like two or three. And we have a record of him dying a horrible death and saying that, you know, that's what God did. All the sins of the world was put on this baby. And just like on on a, a, a year old young calf, I mean, we I think that theologically we would make the connections. We would say, look, you know, in, the, in Exodus, you know, a, a young lamb was was, you know, brought into the house for a few days and we fell in love with it, it was a cute little thing. It, totally the picture of innocence. And, you know, it was to be slaughtered. And, you know, the blood put on the doorposts and, and all that stuff. And we can make those parallels and say, see, just as a baby. I mean, think about that. Think about if, if that's the way that it was. How, then, would you need to change this view of the atonement to fit that narrative? I can understand in the recapitulation view where Christ had to live— you know, as, as the perfect man in all stages of life to fully represent us. But this isn't a representation understanding. This is just, this is nothing more than a court case governmental view. Somebody just had to pay a fine for somebody else or enable it to be paid. So if Jesus died as a baby, why not just do it? You know, just have them killed then. Also, another thing that I thought of is if God decided to forgive us before the death of Christ, because he forgave people, you know, in the same way um, Christ was just necessary uh, from the Old Testament, but he also knew that this was going to happen. And, and, you know, Jesus is telling people, your sins are forgiven, Why, you know, did God decide to forgive us before the death of Christ when there was no payment necessary? No payment had been made yet, and yet God was still forgiving people of their sins. So, how is that possible? According to this view, God needed something. He needed a payment in order for... Forgiveness to be necessary But yet In the Old Testament we see And before the death of Christ That that wasn't necessary We'll talk more about this After this Hey everyone Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit Do us a favor and check out our website At samsonstick.com Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. SamsonStick.com Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right. Talk more about this after this. I mean, obviously, you can see I'm just the poet laureate of my area. So good with words. Okay, so now from what we understand about this governmental view of the atonement, Do people really hold to this and really believe it? And yeah, they do. And it is, like I said before, primarily a branch of Arminianism that holds to this. More specifically, it is those of the Wesleyan holiness movement that hold to it, but not always. They are much more pronounced in it and much more predominant. So Christ's death makes it possible for you to be saved. As we read from the um, Armenian Confession of 1621, that you're not permanently justified. Okay, even though the Greek word dikaiato, which means um, to make righteous or to have righteous, it's bad English, you know, but, you know, this is a justifying sense. It's a done thing. It's something that's being that that has been accomplished, something that has been done. Um, They would not say that. They would they kind of. Redefine dikaiato in order for it to fit their theology. Now, within um, hermeneutics, when you're interpreting Scripture, there's two different main ways that, that people look at things that they, that, that they identify within themselves and within other people. One of them is called exegetical interpretation, which means that you are drawing out of the Scripture what it what it's saying, okay you're're you're, you're, you're drawing it out. isegetical or eisegesis is reading into the scripture what it what you want it to say, what it should say. Now, this isn't something that's just done with scripture. This can be done with anything. And like I said, with this particular confession, people can be eisegetically understanding it. They can be reading into it. Um, I'm gonna let me quickly look over uh, one of my notes. Make sure I got all the things in the governmental theory because I I I think that I did. I think that I I think that we understand that now. Um, the the governmental view. Um, so let's move on here with this um Armenian stance. Now I'll go into modern Armenianism probably next week, but I want to talk about the uh, modern Armenianism. And I'm just going to call it that from the difference between classical Arminianism. I mean, people give it a lot of different names and I don't really know what the proper nomenclature would be that people would say, yeah, that's what I am. And I'm an Arminian. Yeah, that's what it, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's yeah, four point Arminians, five point Arminians, four point Calvinists, five point Calvinists, uh, reformed Arminians, reformed Baptist. I mean, I went through all that before. You just don't know. So, Basically, I'm 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 using these terms somewhat generically. If it's not what you hold to, and I'm calling it the wrong thing, all right. Well, know, yeah, I'm sorry about that, but you know we don't live in a perfect world, and we don't have, you know, the the perfect descriptions of all this stuff. Just recognize that when I'm saying that, you can say, well, I'm an Armenian and I don't hold to this. So not that you know, well, Samson's wrong about Armenianism. It's just that. No, I understand what he's saying. He's he's just trying to talk about a concept, and people who take the name Armenianism that they do hold to this, but it is not representative of every branch of Armenianism. Just like you know, every branch of Lutheranism is not held by what I talked about with Martin Luther, and the same with Ulrich Zwingli and you know, the same thing with the Roman Catholics, and the same thing with um, the Calvinists, but. I want to read to you from um, Lectures in Systematic Theology by uh, Henry the- Henry C. Thiessen. I think that's how you pronounce the last name T H I E S S E N. It's an old systematic theology, and I've I've gotten information out of it before, um, but this is somebody who is a Wesleyan, Arminian, um, probably. Would identify more with the holiness movements, um, and there's a present holiness movement that's that's I, I see coming up. That's a reaction to the uh, radical restless Calvinist movement that I, I didn't really talk about beforehand. I don't even know if I'll get into those two groups, but um, he uh, the way that that he's writing he's also dispensationalist as opposed to covenantalist, and if we get into um, ecclesiology, the study of the church, we'll talk more about the differences between covenantalism and dispensationalism. But if you know what that means and you know, um, the different eschatologies, the end times, um, understandings, then you're going to get this idea of what, um, where he's coming from, the, the, um, yeah, view of, uh, I guess the 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 world view glasses that he's wearing in in what he's stating. So he says in uh chapter 30 of his uh systematic theology here on justification and regeneration that um the, uh, under the the first point of the doctrine of Justi- justification says uh while the scriptures lay great stress on the doctrine of justification uh And he does say that conversion is followed by justification. So you need to be converted first. So that tells us right off the bat that he does not view mankind as being totally dead in their sins. That original sin, you know, makes people completely dead, but it makes them more or less sick. They still have an ability to respond. Now, in this part of justification, he doesn't say exactly how that is. Most generally, and I would say most charitably, um, Arminians say that, or at least Roger Olson does. Roger Olson, who would probably disagree with a lot of this stuff, but he says that because of Christ's death on the cross, original sin has no uh, impact on us, okay? We are not... um, in, In the same way that in the Roman Catholic Church and in the sacramental view that we talked about, the way that baptism washes away original sin, he would say that Christ's death on the cross washed away original sin, but for all people, okay, for all of mankind. And then that is what gives us the ability to be able to choose um, between responding to the gospel, choosing Christ or rejecting him. So, That's the much more charitable way to go. Uh, Pelagius said that there is no such thing as original sin because of his anthropology, um, because he had more of a uh, stoic understanding or a Gnostic understanding that everything spiritual is good, everything physical is evil. And so, you know, God making man and making him good and creating man and if God creates everybody individually not in a traducian view where the parents create the body and the soul but in a creationist view where mankind we create the body God creates the soul and puts the soul into it so if you say that the soul is corrupt or evil and our intentions are evil and our will is evil and marred, then you're saying that God is the author of evil. And that's what Pelagius rejected and said that God's grace is all of general revelation around us. And we need that every day and that that, you know, then pulls us towards God. And we only agree with Adam as far as original sin goes, whenever we sin, then our agreement is with him. But with um, the power of God that he's given us, and our, um, our will that we have, our free will, and our response, that that is what attains salvation for us, attains justification for us. And it is theoretically possible for somebody to never sin like Christ never sinned. That's totally possible. And that's what got Pelagius in trouble. So they would be moving more towards that line here of um, man does have... This type of free will, either by God balancing the scales, giving us prevenient grace, however you want to view it. We are positionally in a place where we can accept or reject the gospel, but the gospel is necessary. And you are converted. You have contrition in your heart. You have confessed your sins. You have turned away from them. And now this is where you are then in a position because of everything that God has done in you doing that, they would say that, no, that's God working in you, even though this is these are things that you're doing. Um, you are in a place now where you can be justified. And he says, while the scriptures lay great stress on the doctrine of justification, in the course of history, it became greatly perverted and practically discarded. Again, this is a a restorationist understanding that if the doctrine of justification is the central part of the gospel, then the gospel was lost until it was rediscovered again. It says, "...it is the glory of the Protestant Reformation that it restored this doctrine to its rightful place. We are more or less disappointed when we search for the doctrines of regeneration and sanctification in the Reformers." These did not receive sufficient emphasis until the days of the Wesleyan revival. So, again, remember when we talked about um, the difference between Calvinism and Lutheranism and how, you know, Luther did lament that he didn't push for more of a, um, a disciplined understanding and, and and how Calvin was much more of the disciplinarian and in setting up, you know, the way that you should behave. Um, Luther saw the lacks of antinomianism, of of, you know, law breaking, people not wanting to follow the law. And that was just the natural outcome of it. And and you guys know that I agree more with Luther than I do with Calvin. So I understand, you know, that I have that same lament, but you know, that's in God's hands, not in in my hands. And I think that we should strive for that, not because it's necessary for salvation, but because or, or justification, but because it's part of our sanctification. But here he's saying that even with what Calvin did, and even with what you know the Puritans were doing and the Anabaptists were doing, and nobody got it right. Not until the time of the Wesleyan revival. Uh, but we may rejoice that the Reformation did give back. Uh, to the church, the fundamental doctrine of justification. Protestants generally agree in the importance of this restoration of a truth long neglected. And again, I don't think that it was neglected. I just don't think that it was fully understood or appreciated, even today. We need to look at several aspects of this doctrine in more detail. I'm going to go over um, just a couple of them, I'm going to highlight. But first off, is the definition of justification that he has here. It says, by nature, Man is not only a child of the evil one, but also a transgressor and a criminal. So, that brings up the contrast between Pelagius and between any type of Arminianism, even if you want to consider this an extreme branch of Arminianism, even they say man is inherently evil, but... You know, there's a difference between the, the corrupt nature and then saying, by nature, man is a child of the evil one. I think that there's a, a distinction in there. I don't think that it that he's trying to imply that God created man evil, uh, that God created man sinful. I think that people would say that he created mankind with the potential of sinfulness, the potential to... to be sinful but he did not create evil he did not create sin goes on as you know a transgressor and a criminal that mankind is is guilty in regeneration man receives a new life and a new nature now if you receive a new life this is me talking if you receive what's called a new life and a new nature but yet you behave like your old life and your old nature are you justified That's what they're observing. That's what they're saying. They they would say, well, no, you're obviously not, which means you're not saved, which means you're not regenerate, which means you were never converted, or you have backslidden and you are no longer justified. In justification, you have a new standing. I'm reading from uh, systematic theology again. Justification may be defined as that act of God whereby he declares righteous him who believes on Christ. So, it's conditional. You have to believe on Christ, and then by doing so, God looks favorably upon you, okay? And he will declare you righteous. So, you are meriting God's favor. They would say, no, 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 you're not. It's, it's forensic, but no, that's Uh, almost a definition of a meritus work, at least in my opinion, might not be in yours. So, F.W. Farr says, and he's quoting F.W. Farr here, justification is the reversal of God's attitude towards the sinner because of the sinner's new relationship to Christ. God did condemn, he now acquits. And that was from the—or then he goes on to talk about uh, unpublished notes of uh, D.Y. Schultz. But um, it, this is problematic to me here, and even, even in understanding this, because justification—if he says justification is the reversal of God's attitude towards a sinner, Okay, God is not changing. God is not mutable. He's immutable. He cannot change. So if you're saying that it's a reversal of God's attitude and his attitude has changed, his attitude, his personality, his view toward you is something that is an attribute of God. It is God himself. That is God. So if it's changing, you now have a changeable God. That's a problem. That's why, you know, we define justification before as God declaring you to be righteous. That is not God changing his mind about you. That is God declaring you to be something other than what you were. And therefore, the change is happening in you. But what he is doing is he is declaring you righteous, and therefore you are. It's happening in you. The declaration that he has made, you are positionally righteous, but it is not the faith that he puts in you that changes you. It is not God saying something, God doing something. And then you through what he has done responding that, you know, then justifies you. It's God declaring that you have. So it's not God changing his mind. It's God speaking. It's God declaring, which we know he does. Um, you know, God spoke the universe leapt into existence. So I would have a real problem with accepting that part of, you know, w- within this systematic theology, within this type of of holiness movement understanding. Now, under the section of the method of justification, um, he, I've highlighted here that um, in in the first section of it, the first part, Uh, Men are not saved by doing the best they can, as the statement is commonly understood, but they are saved by doing the best they can. If thereby they mean that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it would be like saying man is not saved by the law of the Old Testament. Man is saved or I should say it like this. It's, It's not like we're saying man is saved by the law. We are saying man is saved by the law. If You say that it is the law of Jesus Christ. Again, it's like saying what the Galatians were doing. They were removing the Old Testament law and putting in another structure of law and saying that this is the law and this is the law that we should follow, the law of Jesus Christ. That's where it becomes problematic. And that's what Paul was getting on them about and saying, no, you're 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 you know taking something out and then you're putting something else in its place, but it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same structure, even though it has different components to it, It's the same thing. This is the problem that the Galatians were having. So by them by him saying that, You know, men are not saved by doing the best they can, as we understand it, that, you know, I'm going to do these works and these works that I'm doing, God will then, um, you know, merit me. I can merit God's favor by doing all these works. No, he is saying that you merit God's favor by doing this one thing, and that's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a refined way of saying it. It's extremely fine because why? You know, justification is by faith alone. Here you go, but it's by your faith, it's by your belief. Again, it's in a way, you know, they would say that it is biblical because those words are in there, but it's a it's out of context. It's a misunderstanding of, of what that means. And that's why they're saying that. I think in the very first podcast I did, um, on in this series of salvation, I did say that Protestants would say. You know, to Catholics, no, you can't be saved by your works by doing those works. You have to do these works over here. And then I corrected myself. I said, well, they they wouldn't say it like that, though. They would, you know, they wouldn't admit to that. They would just admit, you know, they would say that type of definition. And then that's how they would behave. You know, no, you can't be saved by doing those things in the Catholic Church. You have to do these things in the Protestant Church or these things in the Evangelical Church. And then that's how you're saved. That's what's going on here. Okay, he goes on to say then that uh, justification, under section two here, uh, justification thus originates in the heart of God. No, justification is God declaring you to be righteous. Okay, it is what God says. He, in his kindness, decided to provide a righteousness for us. Okay, so again... What's happening here is not God forensically declaring us to be righteous. This then moves now into a sanative understanding. It is by God pouring something into us. He is making it possible for us to merit his favor by changing us. I'll read this this whole part right here, starting with the justification part. That justification thus originates in the heart of God, realizing not only our lack of righteousness, but also our inability to attain it. He, in his kindness, decided to provide a righteousness for us. It was his grace that led him to provide it. He was under no obligation, whatever to do it. In his grace, he had regard to our guilt, in his mercy to our misery. Okay, so again, it is by God pouring something into us, God changing us, God doing something in us, changing our heart, that then we are able to live right and to earn our salvation, earn our salvation, sanctification up to glorification, possibly, but definitely sanctification. And a lot of people would say, you know, this and this is, A progressive justification in a way, but they wouldn't call it that because they would say, no, you are justified, but you can lose it and you need to be re-justified. However that works, as Paul pointed out, what, can Christ be crucified again? But no, what's going on here is it's the same thing that the Roman Catholics hold to under the um, sacrificial view of the atonement or the satisfaction view of the atonement that by what Christ did, God can then pour you know, his limitless merits into us. You know, we have these limitless limitless merits at our disposal, although they wouldn't use this terminology, but it's, you know, his justification is then given to us and poured into us, and therefore we can be saved. We can live, and if we live the perfect life here and not sin, we will be saved. It it is that potential that we have. And I, I found a lot of this to be very problematic, as you can hear in, in my voice with this system. Um, part, section four here, I've, I've highlighted this part. I thought it was interesting when it talks about um, faith, that it's by faith that we are saved. And, you know, and we've gone over what, what that meant in Galatians, and it was the faithfulness of Christ, it's not our faith. But a lot of people hold it like that, and I don't fault them for that, you know. I mean, that's that's what it says in the same way I don't fault the Catholics for doing penance in order to, you know, receive God's mercy and God's grace. And then that filling them and changing them, because in the Latin Vulgate, the due penance um, is how uh, repent was mostly translated, so... Um, if, if they're saying, well, you have to repent in order to be saved, it's the same thing as saying you have to do penance in order to be saved. Same word, same problem, same you know, emphasis on what we are doing. So it says here that um, faith is the condition of our justification. It is not for faith that we are justified, but by faith faith is not the price of justification, but the means of appropriating it. Now, the way that they're using the word appropriating here, it means to take something for one's own use. So if we are given this justification, we are then appropriating it by faith, which means by believing in it, we are taking it for our own use. So God gives us the ability to take something in order to save ourselves. This is how we are saved. This is how we are justified. Now, if you've ever been in churches or, you know what, in American society, the way Christians are portrayed, portrayed, you know, they're portrayed in this way that you have to do something to earn your salvation. And why a lot of people say, "Why well, wouldn't be a Christian. I don't want to do all those things. I don't want to have to live that way, do that. I don't want to be a Ned Flanders. I don't want to be worse than a Ned Flanders. I don't want to be one of those guys that's standing on the street screaming that you have to repent or you won't be saved and, you know, all this stuff. And And this is the emphasis. This is where they're getting it from. These are the most sensational people and these are the ones that make it say, Christianity is just like any other religion. It's a works based salvation. Okay. You have to do these certain things. This is what being a Christian means. You know, I mean, people that have had run ins with these type of Christians. And this type of Christian is very evangelical by necessity, because they would say, you have to go out and you have to tell people, and people have to accept the gospel so that they can be justified. So they are very big on evangelism, which means they are the most visible type of Christian out there. And with them being the most visible type of Christian out there, that's what people think that Christianity is. And so, when I talk to people and I explain that no, it's by the faithfulness of Christ, if Christ was good enough, you are saved. He is your representative. I've had people say to me, Your brand of Christianity is weird. Why? And I'm, you know, why do you even believe? I have never heard that. I know a lot of Christians. And then it's the argumentum ad populum fallacy that the popular uh, uh, understanding. That I've been exposed to is not what you're saying. Therefore, you are wrong. It's like when you uh, talk to a Muslim about Christianity. The, uh, the the Quran tells them what Christianity is, and or at least what they think the Christianity is. So if you're telling them something different, they're saying no. The Quran, which is perfect, um, that is not agreeing with its definition of Christianity. Doesn't agree with your definition of Christianity. Therefore, you are wrong because. The Quran is right. And that's what a lot of people think. They sit there and think, no, I've been in churches where they say, turn or burn. You need to live this way. You need to be perfect. You need to stop doing this. You need to stop doing that. You think that you can just do whatever, you know, and then you're saved. If you're going to be in a car accident, and I've heard people say this. I've heard people say this and get amens in churches that if you were in a car accident and— a truck or a dump truck or something was coming at right at you and you said a swear word and you died then in that accident you would go to hell because you did not repent of that and that's why they would say anybody that commits suicide is in hell because you are murdering yourself and murder is a sin and you did not repent of it again anything that you can do that would be considered sinful sends you to hell. And it is a very anxiety-ridden denomination to be in. It's very, you know, I mean, you hold to this stuff, you're going to be riddled with anxiety. And these are the people that, you know, when atheists say that they've come out of churches, these are, I think these are the churches that they typically come out of. The ones that talk like this, the ones that say, you know, I'm not going to do all that you know, okay, great, so I'm going to hell, I'm a sinner, whatever, you know, and they just leave. And then they say, this is what Christians believe, and I know my Bible, and I can show you this, that, and the other thing, and, oh, really, I have to be perfect? Well, look here in the Old Testament, all these people did all these things. I mean, you're trying to say that marriage is just between one man and one woman? Well, look, in the Old Testament, you know, David had all these wives, Solomon had, like, 700 wives and stuff. I mean, is that what you mean by biblical marriage? Is that it? Yeah, I mean, totally taken out of context, not understanding that No, they did wrong. You know, like David's children were raping each other. They, you know, he, his kids were like running him out and sleeping with his wives. It's not like they had a, a functioning family unit. that they were disobeying, you know, what God had said, not, you know, they, what they were doing was not prescriptive of the way we should be doing it. It was just descriptive of what was going on at the time. So if you're in this type of church, or if this is the only type of salvation understanding that you have ever had, I can understand why you would be soured on the Christian faith. I totally get it because this is just, you can't live up to it. You can't do it. You either have to come to the understanding that I'm just not going to be saved or You then have to go into complete denial of a very strong holiness movement that says, I no longer sin anymore. I can't sin because I'm a new creature. Well, you can't sin. What do you do? Well, I make mistakes. Mistakes aren't sin. I mean, because sin literally means, the word literally means to miss the mark. If you've made a mistake, you've literally missed the mark. You are sinning. But they would say, no, it's different. We can't sin. Scripture says we are a new creature. We are not the old creature. We do not sin. Therefore, we can't sin. And if you claim that you sin, then you are not saved and you are going to hell. In my opinion, this weakens God so much. It makes God so impotent. He does not have the power and the ability to justify people or to save them. But this is the branch of Arminianism that logically comes out of that type of understanding Uh, in the Armenian, out of the Anabaptist movement, out of not understanding history, out of not understanding the history of theology, of not understanding what the Stoics thought of not understanding. I mean, just everything that we've talked about in the theology pit in our, in our series leading up to it and just saying, well, I can read the Bible because it's the Bible and just pick it up and say my interpretation is what it is. Now, like I said, not all Armenians believe this. And we're going to go over uh, next week on what I think contemporary Armenians would say and what they do. And it is not as rough as this. It is not as putting down. It's, it's very palatable. I understand why people are Armenians. I still, you know, of course, I still think that they're they're wrong about it. And I think Calvinists are wrong too. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm neither one, which it's funny, you know, to Arminians, they think I'm a Calvinist and the Calvinists, they think I'm Arminian. And, you know, um, well, I guess the holiness people here just think I'm going to hell. They, they think that I'm completely wrong. And I am have. I mean, they agree with the Catholics at the council of Trent, that I am anathema that even because I understand this and I, I reject it, that I have no hope of salvation, that I'm going to hell. Um, you know, Anglicans and Lutherans are probably like, meh, you know, maybe like, yeah, you're really racking your head over this. Like, they're, they're a lot more laid back with it. But um, this is, I think, what is uh, most represented by Christian churches. And um, hey, if you've been listening to The Theology Pit on uh, podcasts, um, I, I appreciate it. Please do me a favor and pass the podcast around. Tell people about it. Uh, write a review for me on there. I would really appreciate that. Tell other people about it. If you feel led to, you know, donate, if you donate a a couple bucks, you can do it on the website, samsonstick.com that, you know, buy me a cup of coffee. That's the way you can buy me a cup of coffee. I appreciate that. Do you have any questions about this? If you would like to see me cover any of this stuff, because we are winding down uh, in this understanding of um, our salvation series. And where we're getting to uh, I'd appreciate that Again, visit me on Facebook I hear the music there um, At the Theology Pit Send me a note uh, You can email me Samson at samsonstick.com Or you can just visit me At uh, samsonstick.com And check out what's, uh, what's sitting there uh, All of these things are archived In the Salvation Series And now I think it's definitely time To close down the pit